Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. Today we're going to be talking about crime and detective fiction. With me are Simon Brett and Andrew Taylor. Andrew is a former regular crime reviewer for The Spectator who continues to write for us and whose latest book is The Ashes of London. That what we're here to talk about principally is Simon's project, which is a thing called The Sinking Admiral, which is the descendant of one of the great literary games of consequences. And Simon, can you start by telling me a bit about The Sinking Admiral and its ancestor? OK. Um, well, first you have to know about The Detection Club, which is a collection of about 60 of the country's premier crime writers, and it exists solely to have three nice dinners a year. And to defray the expenses of these dinners, uh, we have used royalties from various publications. And the first publication by the Detection Club, which was published in 1931, was a collaborative novel called The Floating Admiral. And it featured writers such as Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, G.K. Chesterton, E.C. Bentley. And what they did then, because although they were writing in different styles, they were all writing the same kind of book. They were writing the classic Who Done It, And so one of them would write a chapter and it would then be passed on to the next, like a baton in a relay. And I don't think a lot of editing went on, um, and they all put their, their theories, their solutions in the back of the book. And it was kind of masterminded by Dorothy L. Sayers. I was uh, president of the Detection Club for 14 years, and I always had a plan hoping to write a sequel again, for financial reasons, so that, you know, we write it for nothing and no all the royalties go to the, um, to the detection club and hopefully defray uh, the price of the dinners. That's the aim. So we have this concept to write The Sinking Admiral, which has recently been published in June, 85 years after the original, and there were 14 contributors to the first book and 14 to the second. But it was a much more difficult project in a way because the crime genre has diversified so much. Now, Andrew, you were given the chance to contribute to this, but decided it might, discretion might be the better part of valour. I, w- I mean, I would have loved to in a perfect world, but just I had the feeling it was one of those projects that could could take over one's life and I think for Simon it probably did (laughs) I made some rather rude remark to him about herding cats but I think he herded the cats extremely well I have to say but I I would have loved to do it actually and having having actually read the finished work The Sinking Admiral I'm full of admiration that that Simon's managed to to, um, tie all these sort of loose cannons into one single, single explosive battery. (laughs) It's it's obviously a very, you know, something you said originally they were all writing in the same genre. Yes. This had to be done differently, didn't it? Yes. And also because of the timescale, it had to be done people writing at the same time rather than passing a chapter on. So it was quite a major editing job. And and the one or two anomalies, you know, at the end of a chapter written by L.C. Tyler... The second body was found, you know, wonderful. But sadly, the second body was very much alive and featured strongly in the next chapter written <laughs> by Natasha Cooper. So I had to do a sort of corpse transplant and we made the second body somebody else. So there was a lot of, a lot of that going on. And actually, I was thinking when I asked Andrew and, you know, he, his schedule was quite busy. I also asked P.D. James because I thought, look, wonderful if we could get her name on the, on the cover. And she said, well, Simon, the thing is, with any project like this, what I always ask myself is, is it the kind of book I'd like to read? 
And I don't think this one is. Um, so she didn't, <laughs> but she did. She did agree that she would write an introduction. But sadly, um, death intervened. Uh, so we have actually the book is dedicated yeah. to her memory because she was a very keen member of the detection club and supported it a lot so financially you, too. Actually, so you planned the whole the whole of the story in advance. Yes, actually in committee. As I mean, it were, I mean we the, we started we um, we started with. Uh, drinks reception at the Groucho Club and probably then there were about 16, 18 of us and we sort of talked about the idea and some people backed out and I, at that stage all I thought was that we would go where people's ex- expertise was so for instance Michael Ridpath who writes, or used to write city thrillers, he's, he's moved on to a different kind of book now, so he wrote the chapter about the iffy financier, uh, Martin Edwards who was a lawyer for most of his working life, recently um, become a full-time writer. He wrote the one about the shifty lawyer, Ruth Dudley Edwards, um, you know, journalist, and so she and interested in politics. She wrote about the the shifty politician, and and that's the way we kind of built it up. And then we had a variety of meetings in the upstairs room of a very strange pub in New Cavendish Street called the Ship. Um, it was all sort of plush kind of um, seats with red velveteen and anyway um, and we had quite a few meetings there where we sort of thrashed out the plot and things. When you do thrash uh, out a plot like this I mean it's always the question that I think a lot of readers have for any crime writer do you start with a corpse or do you start with a villain or do you, I mean which way um, or do you simply start with the first chapter and see where it leads? And in then... this case we started with the setting and in fact, I think a lot of crime writers, I mean, certainly P.D. James always started with the setting. You know, she would find the setting and, and then she would spend a long time thinking about the book and actually planning it in her head. And that process could take six months a year. And then when she started writing, she said she regarded it like a film and she would write the chapter that was most vivid to her, which is very unusual because most crime writers are linear you know with the crime novel you start at the beginning and you go through but Phyllis was one of the few who actually did it out of sequence. I feel very jealous of her ability to do that actually uh, to see the whole novel exactly, before she started exactly. I mean, like, like many of us I'm the sort who blunders through from chapter yeah, to chapter Yeah, I think most of us you know we can see three or four chapters ahead we possibly, we're lucky yes. yeah, through I mean, the fog <laughs> Is it true that I, incidentally that I read somewhere that Agatha Christie used to have no idea who'd done it until and at the very end she simply arbitrarily decided he'd done it and then go back I'm not sure I haven't heard work. that no, I mean John, I think, John Curran who has edited her notebooks he would be able to answer that, that question because he knows but I sus- everything about I suspect in general she had a pretty good idea of where things were going I think, I think so. she planned beforehand in those uh, notebooks didn't she, yes, she had those, yes. those notebooks which have recently she always been said she, she did her plotting while she was doing the washing up she said yeah. that was the best time to work out the plots well, Though it's but rather I hard think, to imagine her washing up, isn't it? Well, I, mean, I, I think she was quite a grand dame. In her well, way. only towards the end of her life, I think. Um, you know, I, I mean, I mean, I guess she was of a, a milieu where they had servants most mm. of the time, but uh, supervising the washing up, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, but I think for most of us, uh, well, I certainly start with the setting. 
and it, and we did with the sinking admiral very definitely because we wanted you know we we wanted the echoic title so who was the admiral what was the admiral and in fact the admiral is a character who runs a pub which is called surprise surprise <laughs> the admiral bing um because we thought admiral bing was quite funny because he was shot shot pour encourager les autres um so so the, i mean there are a few little private jokes in the book and that's that's one of them so that's how we started and then we did the distribution of chapters and towards the end Stella Duffy contributed to the book and there wasn't really a chapter for her so she did some of the kind of carpentry if you know what I mean the joining up of bits which and, and also we got the the stupid policeman as there always would be in a golden age book and we got Peter Lovesy to write all of those bits. So those are kind of threaded through the narrative. I mean, he didn't write whole chunks. He wrote the scenes, which, you know, the stupid policeman scenes, uh, which we, which we, you know, we planned where they were going to be. And he did that in an inimitable style, I think. Hmm. Now, something uh, which I think both of you will have a view on is, obviously, in the Golden Age, everyone was writing whodunits. There was mm-hmm. quite a narrow mm-hmm. sort of focus of rule books, even. Why don't people write whodunits anymore? And why is crime... Does it seem to be so fragmented? I mean, can um, you talk about a crime I mean, I, I think the Second World War had a huge amount to do with it. I think it's partly that, you know, in the so-called Golden Age, the puzzle was paramount. You know, the whodunit was really important, and there are some wonderful examples of puzzle books like... You know, For a variety of reasons as well. Yes. I mean, the, there is the theory they were seeking refuge from the horrors of World yeah, War I and, exactly. and the traumas of the 1920s and yes. 1930s. And, and, and so they kind of made death into a game if you like yeah and it's very interesting if you actually trace the development of the whodunit and the crossword puzzle they match almost exactly mm. i mean the crossword if you puzzle them against each yeah, other they the, go the hand crossword in hand, puzzles kind of emerged 1910 1915 which was just when you know people were starting to think about it. and it's strange that trent's last case which actually sends up the genre was a very early one, almost before the genre existed. So I, I, I think there was a playfulness there. And I think the Second World War, A, all the puzzles have been done. You know, the very few puzzle books after the Second World War. And I think uh, the, the one that I would mention is A Kiss Before Dying by Ira Levin, which actually is based mm. on a simple, almost grammatical device but I think it's a wonderful book it's one of those where you get halfway through and you think I know this I know this I've got this information you flip back through the book and you haven't I, I recommend it to everyone uh, have you read it I haven't oh I'm you afraid. must no, no I mean this is, this is a, I, I just think a treat to come it's, absolutely yeah. but I mean that is a puzzle book and I don't think I mean people are using you know people like Jeffrey Deaver are using surprises and devices but they're not quite puzzles in the way that, that the Golden Age were. No, in the, in the Golden Age, the puzzles were integral to the whole yes, thing, to absolutely. the whole of the mechanism, yeah. whereas I think after, after World War II, the crime novel began to move into things like, like character yeah, much more yeah. and into the sort of psychological drama of crime, if yeah. you like. And I, I think to an extent that was, that was beginning in the late 30s, with yes. authors like oh, Marjorie Allingham yeah, and absolutely. Sayers herself. Yes, yes, getting much more serious. Um, and also, I think, in the, from the late 30s onwards, and definitely after World War II, there was increasingly a movement for the crime novel to actually reflect the society they were written in. Mm. I mean, you find that in the 1950s novels of Marjorie <laughs> Allingham. I, I mean, there are an extraordinarily acute commentary 
yes. on post-war England yeah. and the rebuilding and the politics, the local politics, the shattered communities yeah. trying to rebuild themselves after, after the war. Yeah. Whereas writing. Agatha Christie, I think one of the reasons for her longevity as a writer is that it's not quite the real world. It's a, just a slightly parallel world, in exactly the same way that P.G. Woodhouse doesn't write about a real world, though there are things we recognise in the books. And I think that's the reason why they're still all in print, because they don't date. Because they the flavour of eternity about exactly, them, because the, they're not anchored it, to a time exactly. and place, aren't they? Yeah, and I think another very important thing which had an effect on the crime novel was the ending of the death penalty. I mean, I'm not in favour of the death penalty for any reason at all, save for crime fiction, because, I mean, it was wonderful in the golden age, you know, Poirot could get everyone into the library and explain everyone's motivations and why he couldn't have done it because of his blood group and she couldn't have done it because, you know, uh, her bifocals were upside down or, or, or whatever. And then at the end, he says, therefore, the murderer was you, yeah. and you are taken off and hanged. Um, you know, no CPS Somewhere off anything. stage, exactly. no blood on the carpet. No, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, but that is a very good end. You know, it's mm. a very complete end. But of course, once you have suddenly, you know, you think about the person in prison, you think about when they come out of prison. And it made a huge difference to the genre, I think. It gets messy, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Well, the other thing that I know, Andrew, you've written about in The Spectator at one point is the difficulty of people getting away with it. I think increasingly, as forensic science has become more and more sophisticated, it's very hard to murder somebody in this country, and unless it's a completely random thing, and be able to One escape of my the consequences. Favorite writers um, is the uh, you know Kinsey Malone, the yeah. alphabet, Sue Grafton, C- Sue Grafton mm. A for alibi, B for burglar, C for corpse, D for dead. Beat, uh, E for evidence, F for fugitive, etc. Mm. Um, she actually didn't want to get into the world of digital stuff you know, mobile phones and all that. And I think it's in O for Outlaw, because she's produced a book a year. Amazing. Um, for I think we're very near the end now. Yeah. You know, I think. Um, and in o Is she going to stop after Z? <laughs> yeah, I think she is. Well, who knows? I mean, <laughs> I mean uh, up, uh, but, but in O for Outlaw, there's a little preface where she says, although these books have been published once a year, in fact, the timescale is the, the, they're six months apart. So um, Kinsey Malone is kind of moving slowly back into the past, mm. not catching up with mobile phones and emails and things like that, which is an interesting, that's another escape route. One of the things that, anyway, this does feel like a very, very British kind of thing. I mean, is, do you think that there is a sort of almost separate evolution in crime writing in the UK from in the States? I think in, in the 1930s anyway, they were very separate streams that the... The English type who done it was was replicated in the states, but in a very in a very conscious way. There was also the pulp magazines with their their completely different model, which was the battered private eye with a bottle in one hand, a broad under the other. And I suppose maybe the English detective story seems to be pioneered by an American and well, so yeah, yes, yes, cross well, fertilization, well, yes, yeah. cross fertilization. Yeah. But I think what's happened now is gradually since the war, the streams have flowed together and muddied each mm. other. Mm. Um, I think a lot of the writers, like like Ian Rankin, for example, very consciously are imitating qualities from Chandler and other mm-hmm. pre-war mm-hmm. sort of noirish American yeah. writers. Yeah. 
So it's the streams are flowing together. It, the new isn't, black. Isn't it odd that, that there's a there's a preconception among some reviewers and and some readers, I think, that noir is somehow more real than the cosy yes, crime novel, yes. whereas in fact they are equally artificial Absolutely. constructs. Yeah, yeah. I mean Raymond Chandler, perfect example. And he and knew that, that himself, yes, of course. And I mean, but yeah. wonderful, wonderful writing. Yeah. Couldn't do plots to save his life, but no. he didn't care, nor do we. No. <laughs> Oh, he wants the prose, really. Yes. I always think, you know, noir, as I say, is seeping in everywhere, and there is even a crime convention in Norwich, which is called Noirage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so we're rather cynical about the literary claims of noir. Yes, yes. I think people, people like to define genres and subgenres and all that kind mm. of thing. Whereas the truth is, I think crime fiction has always been a very very broad church yes even um, even before the war yeah i mean uh, sadly we don't have because the americans have this word mystery which covers all of it mm-hmm. you know a mystery writer could be sort of hard-boiled could be cozy whodunit could be anything it's we don't actually have you know as you say crime fiction uh, that's as close as we get mm-hmm. i think it's pity we haven't got a single word which would cover all of it the ne- next task is to think of one thank you very much both of you andrew taylor and simon brett If you enjoyed that, please do subscribe to our iTunes channel to get a new Spectator Literary podcast every Monday.